If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What you generally want if you're a ruler, I mean, you're a bad guy by definition, you're a politician, you're a bad person. Um, but what you really want is for your subjects to shut up, work hard, and pay taxes. You don't want them to be killing each other all the time and burning each other's farms down. That was Ian Morris exploring the history of warfare. What is interesting about this place is that it's the beginning of, if you like, the modern railway, that it's the culmination of the early railways. And that was Di Drummond speaking to us on location at the Manchester-Liverpool road station. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. We're available in all good news agents, or you can take out a subscription from wherever you are. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for the latest subscription offers. And we also have digital editions for a range of devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of these, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. War is, among other things, bloody, violent and destructive. Yet in Ian Morris's provocative new book, War, What Is It Good For?, the Stanford University professor argues that it may also have been a force for good throughout human history. Our book's editor, Matt Elton, met up with Ian to find out more, and he started by asking him what inspired the book's epic scope. 
Yeah, I, I started out my career, like most historians and archaeologists, looking at a particular time and place. And mm. for me, it was, a, um, because I was largely in archaeology, it was a 500-year time span, about 1,000 to 500 BC. So it was still fairly special. <laughs> but in the larger scale of things, still you know, fairly specialised, focusing on Athens in this period. Mm. And um, I think you're for... The, the bulk of historical scholarship has got to be like that because, of course, you're just making stuff up unless you get all the way to the bottom and you're confident you've looked at all the evidence, then it's all just a bunch of hand-waving. So you've got to have this work. But I think, I mean, I think pretty much anybody who does that kind of work, you realise at a certain point that there are some questions that you cannot answer on this time scale or this geographical scale. And I found that you know, very much in my archaeological stuff that every time I change the scale, the answers to the questions look different. And so I went from working in Athens to sort of looking at the, the whole Greek world and then putting that into the context of the whole Mediterranean and I ran a dig in Sicily for several years and I had a great time. Yeah. But I find two things happened. One was you, know, you change the scale and you begin to come up with new answers to the question you started with. Mm. But the other thing was that as I changed the scale, new questions came out and the original questions started to just seem often a little bit kind of trivial. And, okay. and realised, oh, that is actually a sub-part of a much bigger, much more important question. And with the war stuff in particular, I realised you know, very early on in thinking about this, that this is a question that has got to be answered at a global long-term mm. scale. Because one of the big the weird things about war is you know, on the face of it, it is such an irrational, stupid thing to do to go around killing people and breaking things. Yes. Which is what it is. Uh, but if that's true, if it really is a stupid and irrational thing, why are we still doing it? Mm. I mean, if it's this stupid, then um, you know, sort of evolutionary logic suggests that people who go around making war will get put out of business by people who don't. And um, you know, the, the big thing in the book is about this decline in the rate of violent death and trying to explain that. And so in a sense, this is what's happening. The people, the very violent people are being put out of business by the less violent ones. Mm. But why is it taking so long? Yes. Why is it such an uneven process? Why haven't we got there yet? Yet and mm. what's driving it? So, you know, and I think all of these questions, they're ones that probably only will occur to you even in the first place if you're thinking on a very big scale. Yeah. And definitely, once they've occurred to you, I think that's the only way to answer them, is on, on the big scale. I mean, heading back right to the start of this scale, what sense do we get of Stone Age violence and Stone Age warfare? But yeah, well, we've got two main ways of knowing about it. Um, one is your obvious one, the archaeological record, uh, and that... It's very difficult to interpret. I mean, we get plenty of evidence in that you know, we find lots of weapons. These are among the earliest stone tools we find, ones that could well have served as weapons. And then we find people's bodies, which going back, um, going back to a you know, million years ago, we have one body which probably but not certainly is killed by a blow to the head from a stone axe, probably. Um, and then you get into more recent times, a lot better preservation, a lot more evidence, and it starts to just become absolutely undeniable. At a certain point, you get you know, arrowheads lodged in bones and you, know, you can't really argue with that <laughs> so there's a lot of evidence of massacres this kind of thing but then the other kind of evidence is um, anthropological of study of more recent stone age societies which of course you have all kinds of interpreted problems but there's I think a lot of good reasons to think that certain things about the more recent stone age societies do tell us something about earlier ones as well and one of the big things we see there is it, you know, stone age guys live in these very small groups usually ten or a dozen people and this seems to fit very well with what we see in the archaeology and in these groups there's very little division of labour, very little structure of any kind and violence is a technique that's available to people to settle disputes which doesn't mean they're running around all day like you know, 19th century images of savages bashing each other's heads
heads in, but they bash heads in a lot more than people do today. Okay, and, yes. Uh, like a lot of early anthropologists you know, went to New Guinea or wherever and noticed there were very few pitched battles and when there were battles they were kind of almost like a performance a ritualized thing and they okay. conclude um, Stone Age people very little violence but what they missed because they generally didn't stay very long with these groups is that the real violence comes in uh, murders and raids and feuds which is uh, constantly going on in the background mm. but you've got if, when you're staying with a group of say 10 people um, even if one person in 10 is going to die violently which is a you know, horrendously high rate of violent death that means you're going to see one violent death every generation yes. and so you're an anthropologist if you spend you know, 12 months in the field that's considered a long stint mm. so most of the time people miss this and so it's only really about 20 years ago that people start to put it together and say oh yeah wait a minute this idyllic picture of the stone age it just doesn't seem to work it's mm. that's not real what effect did the roman empire have mm -hmm. on warfare and how it was used i suppose yeah, I think you can trace this, this story, which is what, you know, what fills up the book, basically. It's tracing this story from the, the end of the Ice Age, when the climate begins to change and farming becomes possible, through to modern times. So I think the, the basic storyline that runs through it is that humans, so far as we know, have always used violence on occasion to settle disputes. And when you're looking at um, Stone Age hunter-gatherer societies, they tend to live in... Um, excuse me, in relatively empty landscapes, lots of rooms, so two groups have a fight, um, the losers start realizing oops this is going badly and very often they can just move away though and start hunting and gathering someplace else um after agriculture begins and the population just explodes and in the parts of the world where agriculture is possible the landscape fills up more and more and it's harder and harder to do this mm. so what starts happening increasingly um, and we know of it uh, from documents from say at least 3000 bc onwards starting with egypt and mesopotamia you get these Disputes go on between communities. Somebody decides violence is the answer to this problem. One side gets beaten up. They can't run away. There's just no place to go. And so increasingly you get um, losers being swallowed up by winners, forming larger societies. And that all makes it sound very sort of antiseptic and clear. I mean, in fact, you know, slavery, rape, plunder, all terrible things happen. But until, you know, terrible, terrible experience. But over the longer term, you get these larger societies get formed and the rulers, the guys in charge, what you generally want if you're a ruler, I mean, you're a bad guy by definition, you're a politician, you're a bad person. Um, but what you really want is for your subjects to shut up, work hard and pay taxes. You don't want them to be killing each other all the time and burning each other's farms down. So there's a lot of selective pressure on the rulers to pacify the group they rule, get people to shut up and work hard and pay taxes. And this is what they do. It takes thousands of years and there's lots of really bad people, bad stories along the way, but this is what they do. And the Roman Empire comes along here by the end of the first millennium BC, it's united the, the Mediterranean basin. And by the time of these great empires like Rome or Han Dynasty China or Maori in India, they've driven the rates of violent death down, I think, to somewhere in the, the two to five percent range as opposed to the 10 to 20 percent mm. of the stone age um because you know, the rulers don't want all this violence and it gets more and more internalized as time goes on and um you know cultural values start to play a big part and there's institutions and norms and people increasingly accept yes you cannot go around <laughs> bashing in people's heads but um what i find taking the story on you know, because you get to a certain point of fall of the roman empire the collapse of the han dynasty in china and we get these big invasions out of central asia and germanic invasions in the roman world and the centralized empires just disintegrate and there's no longer a leviathan really 
looking after everybody, telling them, if you do that, I will use, if you get violent, I will use much more violence against you. You will be sorry here. Mm. And what we see happening, I think is really interesting. The rates of violence spike back up as you go into the Middle Ages and these big empires break down. And I think this teaches us a really big lesson that the, the, the values of the institutions are really important in holding down the amount of violence people commit, but they depend on there being a Leviathan in the background to enforce them. And, you know, medieval Europe is a very, very Christian place, much more so than the Roman Empire ever was. But it's also a really violent place, in spite of being full of monks going around saying, don't be violent. And people who, you know, seriously believe in Christianity. They're not pretending. They believe this mm. stuff. And yet, they still kill each other all the time. And th this, I think, is a really big lesson. It does depend on this, on somebody having this kind of monopoly on violence, a huge advantage in violence, and then them using that to stop other people fighting. You talk about productive and unproductive mm -hmm. uh, wars. What do you mean by that and how have they manifested themselves, I suppose, over, over time? Yeah, I mean, I worried a little bit about using this label productive war because I think taken out of context, it, it makes me sound really bad. Um, but I, I just felt that this was the right word for what happens, that in certain circumstances, and basically that's the circumstances you get once farming has begun, the landscape starts to get really crowded and stuff, war can be a productive force in the sense that what it produces is these larger societies that get internally pacified and make the world safer and actually make the world richer as well because you just can't have this volume of trade you start getting by the time of the ancient empires. You just can't have that unless you've got a pacified world. So war... Under the right circumstances, war is a productive force in a certain way. But that doesn't mean that war is always a productive thing, obviously. And uh, um, you know, before the origins of agriculture, I think you can basically say war is just an unproductive thing. It doesn't produce any positive side effects at all. There's periods like, say, when the ancient empires begin to break down, where I think you can talk about counterproductive war. The, the, the net effect of war is to break down larger, safer, richer societies into smaller, more dangerous ones, a war very much counterproductive. Mm. And um, it's like anything else you think about in an evolutionary kind of way. The same sort of behavior will have very different consequences if you change the environment that you do it in. And so, like, regularly we see ways of fighting wars that have been productive in one period suddenly become counterproductive in another. I think here the classic case would be, say, the kind of total war that we waged in the 20th century up to 1945. This abruptly becomes counterproductive after 1945. Um, when you've got nuclear weapons, because arguably it's already turning counterproductive well before that, but once you've got nuclear weapons, there's no argument anymore. Even Joseph Stalin, he was not a cuddly guy, even Stalin was terrified of nuclear war. What um, historically were the things that decided whether a war was productive or unproductive? Um, mm -hmm. And was there a point at which this cycle stopped, stopped happening? Yeah, I think this is something often you can only really make a judgment like that historically over a sort of long run period. And like I say, you look at World War One, which you know to most people's minds is a, a classic unproductive or counterproductive or counterproductive or disastrous war, terrible stuff going on. Um, the outcome in 1918 uh, is very hard to see that as being a better world than you'd had in 1914. It's disastrous. Um, and yet, you look if you look at a longer perspective. Uh, the, the First World War starts to look like just the first phase in a bigger productive war. Like, say, um, in the 19th century, the world 
is dominated very heavily by Europeans and their overseas colonists. There's half a dozen great empires, and there's really only two or three or four truly global powers in the world. So the world has already consolidated a lot at this point, but there's still there's multiple great global powers. By 1945, um, European empire swept away, and this has been whittled down to a world dominated by just two superpowers, so a much more integrated system. Um, by 1989, you've got just one left. One of the things that I found, uh, I mean, you know, maybe it's because of the, the environment I find myself in, you know, a very liberal university setting in West Coast, because uh, very like here actually, uh, but one of the things that I found as most irritated people is that you know, the, the the thrust of this book is that what has made the world a safer place is the way that war created these larger, safer societies, these governments that pacify things. And we've seen the rise of bigger, over time, ups and downs, but basically toward bigger and bigger organizations. And now we've got to the point where the US is like the globo cop overseeing a global order, you know, of a very different kind from the Roman Empire. Obviously, it's not as politically integrated in any way, but it, it, there is sort of a global order mm. out there that the US oversees with its ability to apply far more violence than anybody else can. And so, of course, nobody in their right mind risks um, receiving that violence. You've got to be a Saddam Hussein to get yeah. yourself beaten up by the US nowadays. Um, seems to me the obvious to policy implication of that is that if you want a safer, richer, more peaceful world, you must support American global domination. The, the book has already come out in the German translation. I was over in October talking in Germany about that. <laughs> you can imagine how this went over. Yes. I happened to be there on the day that the news came out about the NSA tapping Angela Merkel's cell phone. <laughs> and people were holding me personally responsible. <laughs> Seems slightly unfair, eh? But I guess it is, a, it is an implication of my book that, mm. sure, of course they're going to tap a cell phone, and you should be glad. <laughs> so that was not so popular. No, I mean... That sense of there being a kind of global world order ruled by one mm -hmm. um, one power. When did that emerge? When did these kind of organisations start striding across the world? Yeah, in sense? yeah, very much in the 18th century. But before that, there's been uh, people with sort of ambitions of global domination. You know, a lot longer. And the Romans, if the Romans had known where the rest of the planet was, they would have wanted to conquer mm -hmm. them. No doubt yes. about that. I think what happens in the 18th century as this is as this process is going on, the Europeans are fighting each other to control these trade routes. The old attitude had been, well, you're going to conquer the new world so you can plunder it. You're going to steal all the gold and then you're going to dig up all the silver. This is great. And you're going to bring this stuff back to Europe and spend it on fighting wars against your neighbours. Mm. This is all fantastic. And the way to profit off this stuff is either to steal stuff in the new world or to steal it off the Spaniards when they try to bring it home because the Spaniards have already stolen all the good bits. Um, in the 18th century, though, people, especially in Britain, um, which I think is ge geographically the best placed country to exploit kind of a new vision of this. Um, British guys like Adam Smith is a classic one, start saying, well, wait a minute. I mean, look, what's happening here is that uh, you know, these global flows of trade are developing, which are enormous now. And in Britain here, you know, our position depends very much on these global flows of trade generating money for us, which allow us to fight the French. Um, and we are thinking about fighting our wars in, in new ways. I mean, the, the old ways of fighting in India was to generate money to spend back in Europe. Um, now we're starting to see that, you know, what we really should be doing is fighting in Europe to keep the other great powers busy within Europe while we snap up the global trade. That instead of being the, you know, the means that pays for the end of fighting in Europe, trade has become the end in itself. 
Adam Smith, and you know, actually a lot of other people too, but he's just the, the one who's smart enough to figure out all the, the theory behind it. Mm. They all start say, seeing, you know, this, this is what it's all about. It's these global flows of trade. Um, and what, what Smith does, we think, was, was very brilliant, very unusual, saying, well, you know, the end point of this argument is maybe we shouldn't be fighting over trade and building empires at all. What you need is just to make the global flows of trade bigger and bigger. And the way to do that is to um, you know, get the states out of this and leave people free to track and barter and exchange things and just generate more and more wealth. And if the state gets out of the market, they'll be mugging its bigger, more and more and more wealth. But Smith also saw that while that is kind of the implication of his argument. The other side of it is that you can't actually have these markets without the state, because the state is the global cup that guarantees the rules and prevents bad guys from just shooting other people and stealing their stuff, which will, of course, destroy the market. And so he, he grasps really early on, you've got to have both. You've got to have the great naval power of the British Empire, um, but the British Empire must sort of back away from being an empire. It's a very contradictory, paradoxical thing. Mm. And he says, yeah, the best thing for the world would be if the British just gave up and walked away from America and left all those colonists in America to do their own thing. And he says, of course, you know, there's never been such a ridiculous suggestion made and nobody will ever do this. And, you know, fortunately, probably for everybody, um, the Americans saved us the trouble of deciding whether to do this or not by throwing <laughs> us out. Um, but so I think it's in the 18th century that the sort of new vision of what an empire can be begins um, to emerge. And in the 19th century, gradually, the British ruling classes move toward recognizing, okay, this is what it's about. You know, we don't need to directly rule the world. And it's really expensive. There's a lot of trouble, so why would we? Um, we should only try to directly politically rule people when it becomes necessary to keep the open markets that make us rich. And so uh, they're convinced that they must directly rule India, otherwise the whole show is just going to disintegrate. Um, they get drawn more and more into direct rule in Africa, more out of fear that other Europeans will do it than because they actually see a lot of benefit in this. But the, you know, the nature of empire changes dramatically. Um, just talking briefly about the 20th century, um, how far can we see the Second World War as being caused by a lack of a global global cop? Yeah, I think very, very much so is the answer. And I think that people who say it was all Hitler's fault are absolutely right. I mean, it was. And uh, I, it's hard to imagine, you know, if Hitler had never been born, it's kind of hard to imagine any other leader having popped up that would have led in Germany in quite such a disastrous direction. So, yeah, it really is all about Hitler. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, the only reason the whole Hitler thing can happen, I think, is because there's been, there's, there's simply no global cup available anymore. And in fact, it's Sort of, you know, worse than just not having a global cup. Yeah, after World War One, um, the U.S. is the, the British at the end of the war. The British haven't quite grasped this in 1918. They they can't do it anymore. Um, and the people in the USO are very keen that they are not going to do it because they don't see a lot of profits on, in trying to be a global cup. Just see a lot of money will be spent, a lot of Americans will die. What is the point of doing this? So the, the international system you know, unravels across the 1920s. I think the 1929 crash is really important here because the money just evaporates and nobody's in a position to do things properly. But then you add to this the, the cultural response to World War One, and um, especially in Western Europe, a lot of governments say, nothing can justify that kind of slaughter and pain. Nothing will ever justify that. There's nothing out there that is worse than war. Mm -hmm. So we're never, ever going to fight a war. Looking, I mean, you say in the book that you think the next 40 years will be... The most dangerous. dangerous. Yes. Exactly. Um, how do you see this balance shifting in the face of 
so-called global terrorism? Do you mm-hmm. think that it's likely to shift dramatically? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, my, my thing about the, next, the coming 40 years being the most dangerous in the history of the world, I mean, that was actually maybe not the best way to put it. Perhaps the best way to put it would be the, they're the riskiest in the history of the world. There's all this uncertainty out there. And I think um, one of the alarming things in the world at the moment, you know, even though the rates of violent death are so much lower than ever before, the world is so much more peaceful, the US Globocop is so much stronger than the British version was in the 19th century, um, the, the, the scary thing, I think, is that we can see this analogy between what's happening now and what was happening from, say, the 1870s onward in the British case. That, that Britain becomes this global cop, oversees this uh, international trading system that makes Britain so fantastically rich. But the only way for Britain to get rich is to make sure that other countries have enough money to buy British manufactured goods, because that's cause how we get rich. And um, one way to do that is for British capitalists to lend capital to Germans and Americans in particular. And the Germans and Americans use it to buy British machinery, so British manufacturers are happy. And they use this machinery to manufacture goods, which then compete against British goods in the market. So Britain is basically funding the rise of its own rivals, because that's the most profitable thing for Britain to do. And Britain moves from agriculture toward manufactured goods, toward more and more services and finance, because this is the most profitable thing to do. But it builds up the, the people who become its challengers. And from the 1870s on, Britain basically loses its grip as a globocop. It starts having to cut these deals with different countries, saying, yeah, we realise now we can't enforce global um, uh, naval maritime commons, so we must make a naval treaty with Japan, and then a sort of quiet understanding with the Americans, and then the Entente Cordiale with the French, and they keep to handing out bits of their global control. And as they do so, Britain's ability to enforce this system declines. People start saying, we don't know for sure that the British really will do anything. If we were to conclude the way the Germans, I think for actually quite sound strategic reasons, start to conclude that maybe using force actually is the right solution to our problems. Um, They no longer have to think, but oh my God, the British will just walk all over us. And so eventually you get to a point where they do do this in 1914, a disaster for everybody. Because the, the... Scary analogy here is, of course, what's happened to the United States since 1989. Like Britain, you know, its wealth comes from overseeing this global trading system. The only way to keep this thing booming is to have other countries get richer and richer. China, of course, the obvious one this time. China, I mean, it's China is still a very long way behind the US, but it's beginning to emerge as a potential global rival. There's a lot of talk going around now about whether the US is going to be able to continue in this role as global cop for long. And of course, you, you don't know what the short-term developments are going to be. But if recent trends continue across the next 40 or 50 years, we, I think by the 2040s, we'll see a world where the US is no longer a very convincing global cop. We'll be back to a 1910s situation, except now with weapons that are just sort of unimaginably destructive. And that's the really, really scary thing, I think, about the, the coming period. That was Ian Morris. Ian's book, War, What Is It Good For?, is out now, published by Profile Books in the UK and Farrar, Strauss and Giroux in the US. You can read more from Ian and Matt in the May edition of BBC History magazine, which has just gone on sale. Also in this month's issue, we're leading with the story of Queen Elizabeth I's war on her Catholic subjects, plus we're charting the adventures of British spies in Italy during the Second World War, We're exploring the scandalous reigns of the Georgians and investigating a curious tale of cannibalism on the high seas. 
If you like the sound of any of that, then why not pick up a copy at All Good News Agents or via our digital formats. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Before our next interview, it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. The public are ignorant about history, television historian Lucy Worsley has claimed. In an interview with the Radio Times, the chief curator of the charity Historic Royal Palaces said that the average person knows little beyond Henry VIII, Queen Victoria and the Nazis. Worsley, who will next month present a new series for BBC Four titled The First Georgians, said that such widespread ignorance posed a difficulty for academics seeking to heighten awareness of other historical figures. In other news, video film archive British Pathé has uploaded its entire collection of moving images to YouTube. The archive of three and a half thousand hours of footage was digitised in 2002, thanks in part to a grant from the National Lottery, and is now freely accessible to anyone around the world for free, The Telegraph reports. The archive includes footage of Emily Davison throwing herself under the King's horse, the Hindenburg disaster and the Hiroshima bombing. It also includes unusual footage of a baby gorilla taking a bath and a ten-stone baby being teased with chocolate. Meanwhile, an international survey released to mark the 450th anniversary of his birth reveals William Shakespeare to be the UK's greatest cultural icon. The survey asked 5,000 young adults in China, India, Brazil, Germany and the USA to name a person they associated with contemporary UK arts and culture. Shakespeare was the most popular response with an overall score of 14%. The Queen and David Beckham came second and third, respectively. Shakespeare's actual birth date in 1564 is unknown, but it is traditionally celebrated on the 23rd of April. Thanks for that, Emma, and don't forget to visit historyextra.com for all the latest history news. The Manchester-Liverpool Road Station, located at Manchester's Museum of Science and Industry, 
is the world's oldest surviving passenger station and the original terminus station for the Liverpool and Manchester Railway. We sent our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, over to the station to meet Di Drummond from Leeds Trinity University and find out more about the birth of passenger rail travel and the transport advancements of the 19th century. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about some of the earlier um, railways um, that sort of predate this, this particular one? Right. Railways were being developed um, from quite a long time period before this. Mm. Um, there are tramways and wagonways, which obviously service various industries, particularly mining, coal mines especially. Um, so one of the first railway acts or earliest railway acts in Britain is the Middleton Railway from the 1750s, which is in Leeds, which served collieries and so mm. forth in that area. Uh, and then you get the development of um, lines which, would, which provided a longer length of connection between various points. Now, one example would be the Stockton and Darlington Railway, which was opened in the northeast in 1825. And what's interesting about that railway is uh, Stevenson again, it's financed by a local Quaker family called Pisa's. Um, and the aim is, is to provide connections between those two key industrial areas, mm-hmm. which obviously area for coal mining and so forth. Where it compares with Liverpool and Manchester is, is that it's like a, a stepping stone on the way to what this railway did. Right. And it had some of the mistakes which were in effect sort of cured when it came to the Liverpool and Manchester railway. So, for instance, one of the problems was deciding on what technology to use. Stockton and Darlington didn't just have powered steam locomotives on tracks, it also had inclines and ropeways and so forth. And then another factor was that the Stockton and Darlington had various, in effect, subcontractors who provided some of the traction and some of the services Mm -hmm. uh, on the line. Liverpool and Manchester decided that it would be better to be a completely integrated system. So they did everything from planning and building the line, Mm -hmm. buying in the locomotives, obviously, from Robert Stevenson and Company, opened in Newcastle, 1823, um, key factor, and also planning and running the line and the services that it provided, both goods and passengers. Mm -hmm. They didn't have subcontractors, franchises, etc. So they could control the whole operation. Do you think that's what helped make it so successful, that they were in control of everything? Yes. Um, And another thing which made it successful was the investment and the mechanism for the investment, the bureaucracy, uh, the way, for instance, in this building where they could bring passengers in sell the tickets mm. upstairs to the waiting room and off on the train. Oh, train yeah. mm. Smooth, streamlined, mm. nice service for people. I think it's the realisation yeah. that there's a need to be a service industry to the yeah. passengers and those It's a real business, goods. wasn't it? Mm. A business um, with a real marketing ethos. And in, to, in addition to that... Stevenson, through Robert Stevenson and co, uh, and the works that they had in Newcastle, really moved towards removing some of the bottlenecks that they had in 
actually manufacturing locomotives, but also servicing and providing yeah. the parts. Yeah. And it's so lovely that this station has been preserved for people to, you know, to still see what the original would have looked like. Yes. And one of the things which is striking about it, uh, apart from its very grand architecture, mm. I think you can hear my voice echoing <laughs> in the height of this booking hall, was also that it was... It has that similar feel to it, to railway stations, possibly not so much now, mm. but many railway stations in the heyday. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know what this is, and you know how it works. Yeah. It's been described as the, um, the Britain's first successful railway line. Um, is that a north-west thing, do you think? What, what was it about this particular area that made this line so successful? There's various things relating to this area. Clearly, providing that link between Liverpool, Port and Manchester as uh, a new and very, very fast-expanding mm-hmm. industrial heartland um, and the areas around Manchester are involved with textiles, particularly cotton textiles, so they're reliant on imports from uh, southern states of the USA and yeah. key. But in addition to that... It was quickly found that um, the railway would be key to bringing in other commodities. Uh, we've got a warehouse opposite this station, which was built in 1830. One of the first loads that came into that was a mixture of bales of cotton from the southern states of America, really? okay. uh, also um, cereal, flour and so forth, and oranges. Oh, right. So, you know, bringing <laughs> a real in... mixture. Uh, mm. A mixture and an exotic. Yeah. In addition to that, what you find is why this railway comes into being is because there are those who are of merchant entrepreneurial class and also bankers and so forth, both in Manchester and Liverpool and more widely, who have both got money to invest, means of actually raising more money Mm -hmm. through stocks and shares and so forth, and also the business knowledge and the acumen to actually develop the railway and the business side of the railway so it's that which is of very great importance so this is one of the first railways to use all of the different elements that you could see on early wagon ways things like Stockton Darlington Railway and so forth but add to that business Marketing, marketing is a key factor within mm. this railway, and civil engineering knowledge yeah. to put it all together, and also to put the passenger as the important person. Yeah, because it was a passenger line as well, wasn't it? Yeah. It wasn't just goods. Was that was that, the, that from the off? Was it? Yes. Well, in fact, they realised that they needed to expand their capacity for mm. passengers even before the railway was complete. Uh, And even then, their estimates of how many passengers would actually be travelling was underestimated. Mm. Um, So by the end of the first year, you probably got about 75,000 people who travelled on this line. And, of course, the idea of passengers and people actually making more frequent trips and so forth um, was something relatively new. Um, it was attractive because uh, it was quick. 
but also it could be comfortable. One of the illustrations that's in the adjacent room Mm. is of a train on the Liverpool, Manchester, and people could actually bring their own private carriages to be placed on a bogey, so you could take it you know, from one station to another. So it's a really real different way of travelling. Yes, yeah. And so what would the, the general experience of travelling by train have been like during this period? It depended upon your class. Money. <laughs> and money, involving a sense of social class and the class of uh, carriage that uh, you actually paid your ticket price mm-hmm. for. Um, so, again, looking at those illustrations, you have got certain carriages which are very much based on the stagecoach uh, really you can see that they were manufactured in the same sort of way so they've got covers, mm. uh, roofs sides um, they're not open to the elements and they're quite nicely upholstered and so forth inside mm-hmm. um, some of the early paintings of interiors of railway carriages of the best class are really almost like a moving Victorian parlour. They are really <laughs> gorgeous, wonderful hangings and uh, mm. so forth, upholstered uh, carriage uh, seats. And then at the opposite end of the scale, uh, it was open to the elements. Um, very uncomfortable wooden seats, and don't forget that uh, springing, although they've got springing, leaf springing, and so forth, it's in its early days. So, one of the complaints that people used to get, uh, allegedly according to the Lancet of 1865, was railway spine. Oh, yes, yes, I've heard of that. From being banged up and down yeah. and so forth. Um, it's a new sensation. Imagine travelling quickly for the first time. Yeah. Um, you've actually got to get used to the idea of moving. Um, people felt sick and ill they had advice on how to deal with that although a lot of people like Fanny Kemble thought that it was splendid and they really enjoyed it and then of course being open to the elements that was very difficult there's some wonderful illustrations from the 1840s in the Illustrated London News Mm -hmm. of people just uh, all their clothes wrapped around them to keep them uh, warm Uh, faces (laughs) looking into the wind and the rain and so forth and there's even one figure which appears to be of somebody wearing a battered top hat who seems to have wreathed himself in blankets so he's just (laughs) like almost like a ghost on the train actually facing the elements gosh and would it have been an expensive way to travel even even third class um yes um, compared, I mean, compared to horse and carriage and what, you know... Right, sort of well, I mean, compared stage. with stagecoach and mm. so forth, um, third class um, was possibly a little bit expensive. It depends on the distance that you were going and factors mm. like that. Um, and for first class, yes, um, it was expensive, but they, this was a class of people who could afford such things... Um, and the other factor was was that it became popular very rapidly so this railway was an example of really encouraging people to take the train and become passengers Uh, but the railways that followed soon after the main trunk lines in this country were very much passenger lines 
the real number of times that people travelled and travelled some distances increased. And the other thing which occurred was people took trains over shorter distances, mm. so that increased the number of journeys that people were taking. Um, so while you could still find plenty of people who would never have been outside their village or anywhere like that, um, there is just that rapid increase of moving about from town to town and place yeah. to place. It's a very exciting time to live with all this happening. Yes, because um, it wasn't just an exciting time as far as the railways were concerned. It's lots of other mm. technologies, but also I think we overemphasise technology. It's organisation, it's investment, yeah. um, and it's factors like industrialisation, which you know, for many people was not exciting. Um, this area, for example, would have been dank and filled with the smoke and soot, not just of the railways, but of the mills and so yeah. forth. Uh, but also exciting because everything was changing, everything was rapidly changing, not necessarily improvement, by no means. So a lot of people were clearly suffering as a result of some of the industrialisation, but... In other instances, it's an exciting era to, for change and development. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the, the, um, the Manchester Liverpool Road station didn't actually stay open that long, did it, after it? After no. It, uh, it came, became um, a good section and warehouse, and mm. there's the warehouse of 1830 opposite here, and an alternative passenger station was open nearby in Huntsbank. Yeah, and then the railways really took off, didn't they, after, after this? Yes, so from this you get the opening up of uh, building and opening up of major trunk lines, um, so Grand Junction Railway, which went from near to here mm-hmm. uh, through down to Birmingham, London, Birmingham. Um, so the development of that uh, Great Western Railway and so forth. So 1830s into 1840s, you're seeing a real rapid expansion and boom of railways in this country, but also overseas. You could say it really sort of started here then, didn't it? it was, this was instrumental in there. Yes, uh, but what is interesting about this place is that it's the beginning of, if you like, the modern railway, but it's the culmination of the early railways. Mm. So some of the other wagonways and so forth that I'm writing about in the article Um, a lot of the lessons that were learned from those over many years so Middleton uh, Railway in Leeds gets its act in the 1750s locomotives that are being uh, developed and produced from uh, 1800s uh, that is really coming to fruition uh, in this railway and it's like a coming together it's like there's nothing spectacularly original or new about this railway in every, anything but the fact that it pulls all those factors together mm. right, so Di, we're, we're very lucky that they've, um, the, we were, we've been allowed to climb aboard um, Planet um, the, one of the, on the, ste- the steam trains here um, tell me a little bit about Planet's and the planet class really resulted from the experimentation that Stevenson uh, really engaged with as far as uh, Rocket was concerned and yes. obviously the Rain Hill trials. It 
it's got so many of the features of the rocket, like the multi-tubed boiler system and yeah. so forth, which really enabled uh, Stevenson uh, and Robert Stevenson, because it's the son who is very much instrumental in the building of these locomotives in his firm, which was set up in Newcastle in 1823. Yeah. Um, and it's a system which gives far more effective and faster uh, boiling of the water so you can raise the steam more yeah. effectively. It's a more powerful locomotive as a result of that. But it's also a more powerful locomotive because of its form and its design. Mm-hmm. In comparison with novelty that we saw indoors, yeah. this and indeed um, Stevenson's rocket, if you see it down at the Science Museum in London, is much heavier. It's got a horizontal, not a vertical boiler. Yeah. Uh, and it's really taking on the form that we associate with classic steam trains. Mm-hmm. So you've got a frame which is bearing the load of the boiler and the firebox and so forth. You've got the wheels uh, that are set within that frame. Yeah. And then you've got... You've uh, got the massive load of coal <laughs> behind us. <laughs> yes, because you've got to have a tender bar which you can... Oh, thank you. Um carry the coal and also the water which is in these tanks yeah um so all in all it is a far more effective and efficient and durable piece of equipment um you said about novelty that Mm. the coal was in baskets yeah yeah um here you have got a basis where you can really shovel the coal very effectively out of the tender turn around into the firebox yes so how many people would it have, would have driven this would have been here would it be one person shoving coal two people one fireman one driver right gosh so it would have been a lot of work then yeah uh, and um, what is happening is is that the driver is sort of like the assistant so yeah. can help at certain points can keep his eyes on various the gauges and so on yeah uh, and it becomes the pattern that the fireman is almost like the tri- trainee driver right okay and then the other key thing to remember is is that steam locomotives can't start at the turn of a switch. It's not no, like a motor no. car. Um, we've just had a conversation with one of the volunteers who works here driving this locomotive. Um, and it's two and a half hours before you take the locomotive we the can train out, it, yeah. before you can move it. Some of the bigger locomotives, it could take longer than that. Gosh. It was usually the fireman's duty to go into the steam sheds early and running sheds and yeah. uh, start the whole process of yeah. lighting the fire. They've got to be careful on how they put the coal actually into yeah. uh, the, the firebox and into the grate and so on. Yeah. You've got to make sure that you've always got water um, so your a lot of preparation then yeah, to, your yeah. uh, engine your boiler doesn't blow up um, there's some interesting tombstones in various parts of Britain of those who were killed as a result of their locomotive boilers blowing up really gosh yeah. Um, it's a very dangerous job though, yeah it, it yeah. could be a very dangerous job but of course one of the things that happened is is that there's a lot of interest and a lot of um, parliamentary legislation yeah. to try and deal with that sort of thing so there's inquiries yeah. and there's um, a lot of work on actually improving yeah. the whole system um, so Stevenson's rocket it 
it's part of, it's the result of a, a long ongoing process, as yeah. I was saying before when I was talking about novelty, and indeed a lot of things which are learnt from not just Stevenson's rocket, but subsequent locomotives like yeah. Planet and also Robert Stevenson Co. and the many, many different locomotive manufacturing centres and firms which were based all around Britain. Yeah. Uh, they were learning as they went along and they really developed uh, the technology. Mm. Um, so one of the key things to remember is that locomotives were being exported abroad from very early on in yeah. the history of uh, British Railways. Robert Stevenson was actually abroad at one point um, during the 1820s and so forth. He was engaged in South America. Yeah. Um, locomotives are built here, exported abroad, so is the expertise. Yeah. Um, so British locomotives could be found practically all over the world, clearly mostly in the Empire, but places like America, France, Italy, um, yeah. you could go on. So they were, they were well respected and, and, yeah. and known. Yeah. That was Di Drummond. Di has written a piece on Victorian rail travel, which appears in our latest issue. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in the future. And now we've had a lot more responses coming into the question asked a few weeks ago about our theme tune. Randy Gregg from Sweet Rose Farm says, Folks at History Extra, you produce one of the highlights of my week. I was rather alarmed to hear a request to change your theme music. I'm in favour of keeping the current tune. It is perfect. It's upbeat and elegant like your show. So keep up the great work that you do and keep that groovy theme music. Thank you for that, Randy. Janelle Buckley has also been in touch and she says, I love your theme music. Please don't change it. Was very alarmed when you read out the email from someone else asking you to change it. I love your podcast too. A perfect balance of intelligence without heaviness, educational and entertaining. I've learned so much from it. And all the way over in Sydney, Jenny Joyce writes, I just listened to your podcast when you read out a letter that did not like your theme music. I have to say I love it and sing along with it when it comes on, which my family find most peculiar as they can't hear it as I'm listening on headphones. OK, so thanks for all your feedback and do please keep your comments coming in. As well as email, you can, of course, keep in touch with us on social media. On Twitter, we're at History Extra or like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. And do make sure to visit our website, historyextra.com, for all the latest history news, quizzes, galleries, articles, and previous episodes of this podcast, right back to 2007. Next week, I'll be talking to Martin Sixsmith about his new Radio 4 series on the history of psychology, while Ruth Levitt will be describing how the Victorians buried their dead. Do join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in Manchester and Cambridge and produced by Jack Fletcher. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. 
I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.